1: This week on wealth Track, cutting expenses to significantly boost profits on a variety of investments with wealth manager Stuart Lucas and art advisor Andy Ogenbleck. That's next on Consuelo Mack WealthTrack. New York Life, along with Mainstay's family of mutual funds, offers investment and retirement solutions so you can help your clients keep good going.
2: Additional funding provided by Thornburg Investment Management, Active Management, Flexible Perspective, Ku and Patricia Ewan through the Ewan Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences, Rosalind P. Walter and the Fairholm Foundation.
1: Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. How do you build and preserve your wealth no matter what the market or economic conditions? Well, sometimes a simple answer can be part of the solution. Reduce your tax bite. The less Uncle Sam and local governments get of your earnings and investment gains, the more you get to keep to build your nest egg. Taxes take a huge bite out of investment returns, an estimated 1% to 3% annually that's higher than most management fees and more than the returns or alpha that active managers hope to deliver over the market year after year. The same concept applies to expenses. The more you pay in management and transaction fees, the less you have to invest and live. The average investment advisor charges 1% on the assets that you bring to him or her to oversee and manage. Transaction fees, particularly on frequently traded accounts, add another burden. Well, one of this week's guests calls his strategy to overcome these costs the 50% rule. If you do not get to keep at least 50% of your profits after accounting for leakages to pay taxes and investment management fees, you should reassess your approach. He is Stuart Lucas, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Wealth Strategist Partners, which serves as a chief investment officer for a small number of high net worth individuals and their family offices. He is also an adjunct professor of finance at the Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago, where he teaches courses on private wealth management for the same demographic. Lucas is the author of Wealth, Grow It, Protect It, Spend It, and Share It. And in it, he relates his experience as one of the heirs to a large fortune, which could have been dissipated within a few generations had he not taken a proactive and comprehensive management approach. He is joined by Andy Augenblick, co-founder and president of emigrant bank Fine Art Finance, a leading provider of art financing. He is also the co-founder and president of its subsidiary Fine Art Asset Management, which provides art, advisory, appraisal, and art-related financial services to individuals, institutions, and advisors. Augenblick is a longtime art collector who Art & Antiques magazine named one of the top 100 collectors in the United States. We started the conversation by estimating just how much taxes and fees hurt the average investor.
0: So let's look at taxes first. And and we did some work where uh, two investors on January 1st of 1995 each started with $100. And by 20 years later, one of them had uh, about $588 and the other had $437. Big difference. That's a big difference. And they had exactly the same investment performance, and in fact, that was the performance of the S and P 500. The difference between them is that one investor uh, had an index fund where he paid taxes on the dividends and then reinvested the after-tax proceeds. The other investor was with a uh, was turning his portfolio over 100 percent a year, and he was only paying long-term capital gains, but. Because of that one difference, you had a 25% difference in the amount of wealth that was created.
1: So how important that is. That's from the tax aspect. Just tax. Right. Now, the the fee aspect is what does that do to similar portfolios, for instance?
0: Well, fees affect taxable and tax-exempt investors pretty similarly. Right. Uh, But if you take, um, again, another example where you have an investor... Who wants to put five percent uh, uh, gain in his pocket, and he's taxable? If he invests in an index fund, he has to generate about seven percent return, uh, because then he pays tax on it and ends up with five. Uh, but if he chooses to invest in a hedge fund, for example, he has to generate about a thirteen percent rate of return. So just because of the fees, because of the fees plus the tax, plus the taxes. Okay. That's a 600 basis point difference between the index fund and the hedge fund. So the hedge fund has to add that amount of alpha or value added just for the investor to put the same amount of money in his pocket. So those are a couple of examples of the impact that, that fees and taxes can have.
1: All right. Uh, I understand why it's so important. From an, from an art collector's point of view, Andy, uh, are, are, there, are there similar hits? You know, what are the things that we should pay attention to in collecting art or I, buying art? I think
2: the issues are even greater with art. And one of the reasons is that the long-term federal capital gains rate for art is 28 percent, not 20 percent. So immediately you're starting at a disadvantage. In addition, the transaction costs are enormous, uh, often 15 to 30 percent of the entire value of the assets you're buying or selling. And so the combination of the 8% incremental taxes and the transaction costs make it very difficult to compete.
1: And the transaction costs come from where? Are are you talking about auction houses or dealers or what?
2: Both. Really, it's almost independent of the sales venue, however you decide to sell. Sort of industry standard is that the low might be 10% and the high uh, cost might be 30% of the total value of the assets.
1: So in a minute, I'm going to ask you how to... how to avoid those. But let me ask, Stuart has something called the 50 percent rule. Part of the 50 percent rule is if if you do do not get to keep at least 50 percent of your profits after taxes and fees, you're saying you should reassess your approach. So 50 percent of your profits at least. How high a hurdle is keeping 50 percent of your after-tax and after-fees profits?
0: It depends on the okay. type of investment that you have. So going back to the old example of the hedge funds, you're giving up, it's your capital at risk, and you're giving up 60% of the profit to some combination of the manager and the government. Uh, and so you, that violates the 60, or the 50% rule, and you have to ask yourself, is this a good value proposition for me? Uh, because... How likely not only is the manager going to be able to choose securities in, a, you know, in public markets that are going to generate that kind of value added to overcome right. those 600 basis points of, of uh, value added. Uh, but in addition to that, then I have to be able to effectively choose which managers are going to be able to do that. And that's a whole other set of challenges.
1: And, and there's another set, which is, of course, the move to passive, so is, it, you know, is is that more likely, since the costs are so much lower, is it more likely that you're going to generate those kind of returns with index funds than it is with active managers?
0: Well, in a, in a year like 2017, it was a piece of cake, right? Uh, now, that doesn't happen all the time. Right,
1: a piece um, of cake in that the index funds were going to just about outperform every active manager. Well, they
0: did extremely right. well. Right. But even, you know, if you look out across time, uh, active management uh, does not consistently beat the indexes. I think, uh, in fact, active managers have to outperform the index by several hundred basis points uh, in order to overcome the the additional tax drag of active management. And to give you a sense of that, um, we we again did a, uh, some some work looking at Morningstar data to, and. About 15% of the time, in good 20-year periods and bad 20-year periods and, and in between, active managers outperform. But very few people actually have just one active manager. They'll right. have a large-cap manager and a small-cap manager and an international manager and you know, maybe a value manager. And so if you then take that one-in-seven chance and compound it, because each time you have a manager that underperforms, whatever the bogey is. The other managers have to outperform by even more. So the chance of actually outperforming with, you know, having four managers who all outperform is about 1 in 2,400.
1: Woo, not good odds.
2: Not great odds. No.
1: So, and Andy, is there the equivalent of a 50% rule in the art world?
2: No, no. Um, until the change in the tax law, people used to be, investors used to be able to do a 1031 tax-deferred exchange. That, in fact, went away with the new tax law. But that was a very common program that really high-value investors used to defer capital gains.
1: All right. And so, so, so the 1031 has gone away, so I won't— For,
2: for, art, not for art, not for real estate. No, no, estate. for
1: art. So I, I won't have you define it because it's gone. Right. But so what are the rules now? I mean-
2: Well, again, you continue to have the long-term federal capital gains rate of 28 percent. Yeah. You still have the 3.8 percent, notwithstanding the fact that it was repealed. We continue to have the Affordable Care Act, 3.8 percent. Plus I live in New York, so I pay an additional 12 percent. So in essence, various government entities are my partner to the tune of almost 44 percent of every dollar of gain.
1: So, so explain to us then how do you proactively manage art and how do we do that?
2: It is really important to do it because statistics show that art has appreciated 50 to 100 fold in value during people's lifetimes. Uh, There are lots of ways to do it. The first is to figure out who should be buying the art. I think the tendency for people is to buy it in their own name and that may not be the most tax efficient. Some people, for example, buy it through uh, an IRA or a 401k to manage the taxes. Others buy it by lending money to a family LLC or trust. So it's really never in their name. It's more tax efficient. They don't have to pay estate taxes. Also, how you buy it, knowing where to buy it. Do you buy it at auction? Do you buy it at a dealer? What part of the world do you buy it in? So that you have the right cost basis. And then you want to make an informed decision so you don't have the kind of churning and constant sales that generate those gains. Ideally, you want to hold something for a much longer period of time, particularly now that uh, it's become more difficult to defer that gain.
0: You know, in in the investment world, I think for taxable investors, there's kind of three intersecting circles. There's the investment piece, there's the tax piece, and there's the estate planning piece. And you touched on all three. And it's actually at those intersections where it's a lot easier to generate alpha than it is just in the investment section.
1: That's interesting. But let me ask you, though, because one of the things that you said in the 50% rule is that you know, you, if you're not getting 50% or more profits mm-hmm. than if you're not keeping them, um, then you should reassess your approach. So help us reassess our approach. Stuart, what are kind of the basic rules that we should employ? And one of them you mentioned was, I guess it's avoiding a lot of turnover.
0: Well, or having the right kind of turnover. So mm-hmm. if you can have a portfolio that mimics the performance of an index, but actually generates tax losses, and then you can use those losses to offset against gains elsewhere in your portfolio. I don't think you can offset them against ART, but you can certainly offset them against other securities.
1: So this is tax loss harvesting? And just explain how that works, I mean, how realistically it it works.
0: In a very straightforward manner, if you buy a portfolio to mimic the index, it's gonna own maybe 250 out of the 500 stocks in the S&P 500. And after a month, even if the S&P has gone up, in aggregate, some of those individual stocks will have gone up in value, and some will have gone down in value. And In aggregate, they'll go up the same as the S&P. Well, then you can sell the ones that have gone down in value, realize a tax loss. Then they'll reinvest in some of the other 250 stocks that uh, they, the portfolio didn't buy the month before because you don't want to get caught up in something called wash sale rules. And, and, but you can then rebalance the portfolio to continue to match the performance of the S&P. And you do that every month, let's say. Uh, and after, at the end of the year, you have generated tax losses which are of real value and at the same time uh, mimic the performance of the index. So you've actually created alpha not through security selection in the same way that people traditionally think of right. it, but through tax loss harvesting.
1: And, and this is actually probably through a, a separate account, right?
0: Yeah. In a, in a mutual fund or, a, or an ETF, you can't export the losses to other vehicles. Right. But if you, if you have a separate account, then you can do that.
1: So another thing that I, I read in some of the research that you sent me is that you, you said to focus on long-term capital gains and preferably four years or more. Explain that strategy.
0: The longer you can defer capital gains, the better. Uh, because if you, um, every time you have an unrealized gain, the, um, the tax component of that is earning, even though there's a, a deferred tax liability to the government, you are the person that is earning the dividends off of that tax liability. You are the person that is earning most of the appreciation off of that liability, and, and you get to call the shot. So it's a, it's a great. Uh, liability. In fact, if you have to have a liability, a deferred tax liability, it's about as good a liability as you can get. If you're going to engage in active management, you want to change the way in which you measure active managers because just beating the index isn't enough. Right. Because the process of, of trying to beat the index creates turnover, which creates taxes. Which is a drag for us taxable investors. And so, in order to counteract that, you need to get 180 to 350 basis points of extra return. And you can, it's hard to do
2: that in public markets. It's also increasingly difficult to do that in private markets like private equity. You know, we have a similar set of strategies with art as and mm-hmm. when I talk about art it really includes everything from paintings to stringed instruments to classic cars, classic to, cars wine. to wine and right. no it's
1: really yeah and that's that it's
2: not only harvesting gains and losses at the same time so it's offsetting but it's thinking how best to monetize the collection. So it might be uh, by financing it. You can arrange financing for up to 15 years today.
1: Tell us how you monetize, because I think that I had no idea that you could do this with art. I think it's fascinating without losing your art.
2: There are a few ways. It's literally like arranging a mortgage on your house, but you keep possession. And that's the right solution for some people, some of the time. For others, it does make sense to sell. With others, uh, you know, we've formed charitable remainder trusts with art because there are significant tax advantages for low-cost basis art. Uh, You and I have talked about grantor trust structures. I think the key is to put together a best-in-class team of experts, really what you were saying, the nexus of estate planning people, wealth managers, art advisors. It's an industry where there's a lack of independent expertise. There are parties of interest that are actively engaged in helping you buy and sell. But you really and, need where, where there's the a event. conflict
1: of interest. Huge. Because, but but I'm, I'm curious about, for instance, the uh, the clients who come to you and have this you know wonderful valuable art collection whatever, and say you know something I, w- I want to get an income stream in this low interest rate environment. I I, I want to get an income stream. How can I do that?
2: It's a really collection? common strategy now because interest rates are so low and dividend rates are so low. Right. And so they keep possession of their collection. And they have what's akin to a reverse mortgage. So it might be structured as an annuity of payments that are made to the collector over a term of 15 years, and yet no interest is paid on a current basis. And so it eliminates the risk of outliving your financial assets and provides a level of safety. So that's very common today. There are a lot of people who are enormously liquid and enormously wealthy, but they're still concerned about outliving their financial assets.
1: That with a reverse mortgage... The bank gets the house, you know, once you've died. But you said that doesn't no, happen with far. No, cars. it's simply
2: a loan, and the loan gets repaid by the estate. By
1: the estate. Are you looking at, at what individuals own and saying there are other ways to monetize?
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, your I
1: mean, your, your your assets.
0: Well, there's yeah. there are issues around monetization. There are also issues around savings, right? The you know, for young people, uh, regularly saving money. Uh, actually lowers the risk of investing. And if you can each six to 12 months put more money into your savings plan, whatever it might be, uh, enables you actually to take more risk, because in good times the value of the assets go up uh, that you're adding to it, and uh, and the prices may be high, but they're going to get higher. Uh, but in bad times, you're also adding to your savings at really low prices, and over a long period of time, the, that asset base can really grow. So, so this is
1: dollar cost averaging, for instance. Or but when you're talking about savings, you know, many of us differentiate savings from investments. Correct. So you are too, correct. So when you're talking about adding to your savings regularly, what are you talking about? Well,
0: I think when I, I'm talking about cash flow, adding cash flow to your investments. Okay. And or reducing your spending rate if you are uh, living off of your investments. You know, a typical foundation or endowment must spend four, five, six, seven percent a year, and that puts a real strain on their investment strategy. And they can afford to take less risk. Taxable investors um, don't, I don't think, always fully appreciate the cost of volatility dampening. If they can keep their spending rates low they can withstand more volatility. If you're only spending the, the, the dividends that you have on your equities, then the price of your equities at any given point in time is not Doesn't terribly matter. important, right? right? Um, what's important to you is the volatility of the dividends, and dividends are much less volatile than uh, the price of, of stocks.
1: Is there another strategy that you regularly have your clients employ?
0: So one of the things that we can do do, and it's just gotten a lot better because of the new estate tax rules, uh, which now allow any individual to, to pass on to the next generations $11 million or more. Right. Uh, and that means a husband and wife can pass on $22 million. If you have been investing this tax-managed index fund for 30 or 40 years— you have a very low cost basis on that portfolio, and it's really diversified. But you've deferred a whole bunch of capital gains. Under that $22 million threshold, if you, when you pass away, your children or your grandchildren get a stepped-up basis, which means not only do you not pay any estate tax because you're under that threshold, but also your children inherit... $22 million of stock with a $22 million cost base. So you never pay a penny of capital gains tax or estate tax. Wow.
2: That's and there's, a gift. We have the same strategy with the asset class. Unfortunately, we see a lot of people of a certain age, maybe they're retired, living on a fixed income, they sell the art. That typically does not make sense because they pay two taxes. They pay capital gains tax and then estate tax on the net sale proceeds. It's often much better to keep the art, have the estate sell the assets, and you've eliminated one level of tax. And because of the new tax law, you probably don't have to pay estate taxes on that.
0: And by the way, you know, we operate in a world of probabilities, Uh right? Alpha creation in the traditional sense is a probabilistic game. So is this. It's just that the odds of being able to execute on this are much higher. So would you rather have a low probability option or a high probability option?
1: We are at the point in the show when we ask each of our guests for a one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio.
0: Well, I gave you mine just a minute ago, which is to build a, a long-term tax managed low turnover portfolio. And to the extent that you want more return, then supplement it with alternative investments, uh, but make sure that you're ready to play that game.
1: Is there an alternative for For people who don't have separate managed accounts, who can't do the tax harvesting within the portfolio?
0: There's something called the All-Country World Index, which invests in 8,000 stocks around the world. It sounds really boring, uh, and it's not going to win you a lot of friends at cocktail parties. But over a 20, 30-year period of time, there's nothing better.
1: what same question to you, one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio, what would you have us own?
2: I'd say the two trends right now are a great appreciation for art from other parts of the world. And as that happens, as prices move from regional pricing to global pricing, prices tend to increase really enormously. So we've been buying some art from Africa and some Aboriginal art from Australia. The other big trend is there's an appreciation that a lot of uh, female artists' work is undervalued. And so there's really wonderful work uh, that's still available.
1: So let me thank both of you for being with us. Uh, Stuart Lucas, so great to have you here. And Andy Ogdenblick, you as well. Thanks for joining us on Wealth Track. Thank you so much. At the close of every Wealth Track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is add the 50% rule to your investment decisions. Stuart Lucas explained the simple goal of keeping at least 50% of your profits after taxes and fees. You can apply that general principle to all of your investments, not just financial, but tangible assets such as real estate and art as well. As a result, you will ask some different questions about performance goals, management and transaction fees than you normally would, And you might end up not buying certain investments that you would have made with a more traditional approach. To read more on this strategy, we have a paper Lucas co-authored on the 50% rule available on our website. And to delve much more deeply into managing your assets, I recommend you read Lucas's very personal and comprehensive book, Wealth, Grow It, Protect It, Spend It, and Share It, which is available in paperback. Well, next week, with Treasury bonds under pressure, what role, if any, do they have in your portfolio? Treasury bond manager Robert Kessler states their case. Until then, you can see an exclusive extra interview with this week's guests on activities that add richness to their lives on WealthTrack.com. Please feel free to reach out to us with your thoughts on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for watching. Have a great weekend, a happy Valentine's Day, and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.